Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. In the program this week, we'll talk to a couple of silver ferns who will clash in the Trans-Tasman Netball Championship preliminary final and to a New Zealand motor racing legend. The New Zealand Cricket Players Association responds to the prospect of the ICC using sting operations to try to counter match-fixing and other corruption. The coach of the New Zealand men's hockey team assesses the understrength Blacksticks performance at the Sultan Aslan Shah Cup tournament in Malaysia. And it's week 13 in Super Rugby. The Crusaders coach talks about the all-black captain Richie McCaw's latest concussion and we'll hear from a young lock forward. He's been making his mark in a team written off before the season began. Netball first though and the Northern Mystics play the Waikato Bay of Plenty Magic on Sunday night with the winner to take on the Queensland Firebirds in the ANZ Championship Grand Final in Brisbane a week later. The Magic have made all four final series, although they've never won the title, while the Mystics are first-time finalists. So, with the match being played at Mystery Creek near Hamilton, the home side should be favourites. However, the Magic have to recover from a big loss to the unbeaten Firebirds in Brisbane, while the Mystics are still smiling after they upset the New South Wales Swifts in Sydney. They also have more silver ferns than the Magic after Maria Tuta-Air and Jolene Henry moved north. And the goalshoot Tuta-Air's long-range accuracy is complemented by goalshoot Catherine Latu, who has a 93% strike rate and four perfect games this season. The Mystics are the second most accurate team in the competition, but the Magic are the first. And they also have three key silver ferns, Irene van Dijk at goalshoot, Laura Langman in midcourt, and the goalkeeping captain, Casey Williams. Williams' battle with the Mystics shooters promises to be well worth watching, with the Magic desperate to reach the final, as they're unlikely to have the same side next year, with Van Dijk now 38 and likely to retire after the World Cup. After their loss to the Firebirds, Williams told Stephen Hewson, while it was a physical game, their pride's taken the biggest battering. But I also think, even though we were getting beaten, we still continue to stick together as a team, which is really good to see. More physical than some of the other games you've played? I don't think so. I think it's tough for us, you know, when you look down the other end and our attackers are just getting, you know, like you give what you get, but, you know, they're just getting ridden and we look at ourselves and we just think, well, what can we do to make, you know, their attackers look like ours? So it's a bit of give and take out there, but also we've got to find a way or do anything possible to get the ball. Did you find some of the, the calls hard to understand? No, not really. You know, that's just the game that's going with it as much emotion as we do show or frustration at the end of the day they're the ones that control the game and we can't play netball without them so I think you know you always think you're right but you're not <laughs> um, it's just the way it goes and I guess the Firebirds you know were more deserving on that day so they you know they deserve to win Presumably you've looked back over the, the tape what were your thoughts had they changed as to, to what you thought was going on on court to then having had a bit of time to look back on it to be honest, I've watched it, but I didn't really pay much attention to it because, you know, we're playing the Mystics this week and I'm trying to, you know, you've got to let that game go. So it was a tough game to have a look back, but that's reality and that's the way you've got to deal with it. 
So what do you need to do this week then to beat the Mystics and reach that grand final? We need to come out of the gates absolutely firing. We did, we came out, uh, you know, we had a good start, but just being able to keep that intensity for the whole time. So, um, yeah, but I'm still, like, as I say, still proud of the girls. We stuck together and, you know, we all went down together. Is there a concern that, that the Mystics presumably are going to be pretty confident in the wake of that win over the Swifts, you're coming off that loss that I suppose they go into this game with a greater level of confidence? Um, I'm sure they do. You would if you beat the Swifts and you've got one more chance to make this finals. You would go in like that. So it is going to be tough but um, you know we've got a lot of I guess <laughs> frustration or anger you would say <laughs> about the last game. So yeah definitely looking forward to it. Have you noticed that there is a strong sense of frustration or anger in the way that result went amongst the, the side? I think it's just frustration at ourselves, just knowing that we can play a lot better than that and that we've moved on from where we were. But also, you know, it's not the end of the world. Would you rate that your your worst performance of the season? Yeah, I don't know. Even I think our worst performances are still, are still pretty good. It's just a matter of fact that when you win or lose, whether it makes it a bad one or not. But I still think our structures and all that are there. It's just our um, execution. The fact you've got two New Zealand teams now for that playoff spot in the in the final, what kind of game do you anticipate? Um, it's going to be very intense, very fast. I don't know whether it's going to be physical or it's going to be, you know, skillful is the word I'm looking for. And you know each other so well too. Yeah, yeah, you do. What, so what yeah. impact does that have? You can analyse somebody and you can know exactly what they're going to do, but at the end of the day you've got to worry about yourself and what you're going to do with your team because what I've learned is if you start concentrating on other people you forget about what you're doing. That's Casey Williams talking to Stephen Hewson. Meanwhile, the Mercurial Mystics have cut down the number of 50-50 passes that look great when they work but give away the ball when they don't. In recent weeks they've almost halved their turnover rate which was the league's highest, while retaining their accuracy in the shooting circle. Goal attack Maria Tudor-Air tells Richard Wayne that's not the only reason things are different, though. I think it's because we've got a team of 12 this time. I know that the last um, last couple of years we've had the solid eight, nine players that we can play on court, whereas this year the seven that are on court are getting pushed by our benches to, to get a spot on court, which is really healthy to have in a team. So this year we've got a team of 12. How's your combination with Catherine Latu? Because she's absolutely deadly, top yeah. you know, percentage shooter in the ANZ yeah. Championship, and you've got the long-range bombs, you know, just nailed. How much has that been important? Yeah, I, I, I mean, Katie's come such a long way. Look, she's trained really hard pre-season, and she's definitely well-deserved of how she is playing this year. It's definitely something that Kitty and I, I mean, we, we try and put the ball through the hoop with any opportunity that we get and make sure that um, any turnovers that we get from our defensive end that we score it. It's pretty difficult for the defence with her in close and you out, you know, out wide. You've got to really mark both of you, and there's only you know it's one on one, so you've always got a good shot in the shooting circle. Um, yeah, or well, when we're both on, then we're deadly. If you know if things kind of don't go right, then there's obviously a fallback position. But things are going really well. Well, your defensive end has also been doing the business. Anna Scarlett's really added a lot, and of course Kayla Cullen mm-hmm. also making the All Stars and only 19. Yeah. I mean, the defensive end's obviously been crucial this season for the Mystics. Yeah, they have, and I think you know we can't forget also Rachel Rasmussen, who's been absolutely deadly in that defensive circle and especially with the likes of Jolene Henry and Timopata George without those outside 
people, our defenders wouldn't be getting ball like they have. Yeah, bigger picture. Well, on that, is there perhaps a little too much dependence still on Temapara George? When she has a great game, you guys have a great game. When she doesn't have a great game, same thing happens. No, I think the pressure that we have is the pressure that we put on ourselves. So, yeah, Temapara is a great leader. She's a captain and she definitely is that leading role on the court. But we all have to be there for her as well. And we've got other leaders in our team who are doing a great job to pick up after her if things don't go right. But so far, Temapara is doing a great job. Now, the magic... They choked last weekend, let's face it. They lost Meekly and Tauranga as well to the Swifts. Do you guys have the mental edge over them, do you think, at the moment? Because you guys have shown some really steely resolve throughout this season with all the various milestones, such as winning in Australia, winning the minor semi-final, that sort of thing, beating the Magic, beating them on their court. Oh, look, it's, in terms of winning this game, it did give us huge confidence to go out there and, and beat a team like Swifts. And you just got to know that it's all dependent on the day. I know that this Sunday the Magic will be hurting from last week's game and they're going to be want to be coming out with full guns blazing. So we're just going to have to make sure that we don't get a two-head of ourselves. We know that we can beat this team. We've beaten them before, but look, it's all on the day and it's top four semi-final play. It's a totally different ball game. You know, especially the likes of Irene, when she has a game like that, she is bound to come out the next game and have an absolute blinder. You know, you don't want to go in there thinking that she's going to play like that because I know Irene and she won't. She will play an absolute blinder. That's Maria Tuta Air talking to Richard Wayne and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. To motorsport and the veteran single-seat driver Kenny Smith is to be honoured in Auckland at the Men's Health Trust New Zealand's first Big U fundraising dinner. The dinner is to be an annual event to pay tribute to and publicly recognise a leading New Zealand man across a range of fields. It will also raise funds to expand the Trust's work in promoting the importance of men taking responsibility for looking after their health. Kenny Smith is 69 now and the Motorsport Hall of Fame is still driving 53 years after starting out in the sport. And I began by asking him about his first big single-seater race, the 1963 New Zealand Grand Prix at Pukekohe. There was drivers like Jimmy Clark. Graham Hill, Phil Hill, Bruce McLaren, Amon, they were all there. We had the best drivers in the world out there in those days. It's been a long time since you can say that about the New Zealand Grand Prix. And, and how hard is it when you look at it now and sometimes you see, like I recall one year I got abused because I forgot to put the result in the sports bulletin. The kid that won it was a 17-year-old from Bahrain, I think, and it, at the time I thought... I can remember when all the names that you mentioned were racing, and not only in the Grand Prix, but at the Lady Wigram in Christchurch. When you look back at that, what do you think now when you look at the Grand Prix? Has it gone forever as far as that sort of thing's concerned? Look, I've won it in 76, 90 and 204, but 76 was the cream of the days I won it in. It was in more of the era of the older cars, and even to get the privilege of running against some of those world champions and best Formula 1 drivers in the world, we'll never see that again. And to me, it doesn't have the same sort of meaning now. When you look at Formula One now, sometimes I think I'm almost looking at a, at a video game. The cars are so much more advanced, that much safer than they were. Do you think racing has lost the sort of cachet it had back in the days of your Jackie Stewart's and Jim Clark's and Graham Hill? Yeah, definitely. It was Senna that made a statement, or it might have been Schumacher. It's 20% driver and 80% car. In the old days, it was 80% driver and 20% car. You know, if a car wasn't working that good, you muscled it around and could still do a good time in it. But today, the cars have got to be bang on, and it's all computerised. And when you see the things that they do, touching buttons and going on in the car, too many driver aids. They need to do it themselves. 
when you actually watch them go through chicanes or turning into corners, you would think they're like scale electrics cars, wouldn't you? The New Zealanders you mentioned, I've met Chris Amon a few times, but never got to meet Bruce McLaren or, or the Denny Holm, the bear, although I know people who knew him well. How did you find them, and, and is it sad that New Zealand doesn't have quite the profile that it had back when they were racing, McLaren and Holm and the Can-Am, for example, in the States? No, they were brilliant guys, and, and Bruce was always a friendly guy and always there to help. The first car, major first car I had was an Austin Ulster, which Bruce McLaren started his career in. And, and even then, in those days, when he came out from England and I was running that car, it was always good to come and talk to you. Denny Holm was another one. Denny was, could be an old grump, but at the same time, that's why I got named the beer, I suppose. But he was a good bloke, and he'd mechanic cars and do all that sort of stuff to go motor racing. And, and Amon's a good... Uh, he was a good steerer. It's just a pity he never won Formula 1 races, and the guy had the ability to do it and a nice guy and not a slagger of anybody and he's still like that today he is and was it Enzo Ferrari said that he was one of the best drivers he ever saw best test driver he ever had Enzo made that statement in his book but Chris is good with everybody he talks to even today I think he's happy that what he did I mean he'd love to have won a world championship and he was good enough to win it he was the most unluckiest driver you'd ever see like to be up running seconds and firsts and have breakdowns and troubles with cars and he sort of stepped out of Ferrari at the wrong time but you couldn't stay there forever if things were going wrong. You're synonymous with single-seater racing. Have you ever dabbled in any other forms or, or thought about it, like rallying, V8s, that sort of thing, or do you just single-seater is your thing? In the earlier days, I drove a lot more uh, saloon cars than people know about. I drove in Benson Hedges and Falcons and Escorts and Mini Cooper S's and, and all that sort of stuff. So I've done a lot of I've driven a Camaro and, and all that, Chrysler Chargers, and I enjoyed doing those. But I am a single-seater man. I always figure that a race car shouldn't have doors on it. You've mentored a lot of young drivers over the years. Scott Dixon springs to mind. Any others? Brendan Hartley. We got him a Red Bull deal over in Europe. And I helped Nelson Hartley, which was his brother. We did Formula Holden in Australia with that. Daniel Gaunt. I got him a, a drive in Formula Atlantic in America. There's a lot of them I have helped. Even going back, Greg Murphy in the early days, I gave him a car despite the fact that him and I are not the greatest of friends now, but... You know, I helped him out, and, and I like helping the young guys out if, it's, if you see a bit of talent there. I've got another young karting kid I'm helping get at the moment, a kid, Tom Alexander. He's done a lot of karting, but I've, I've had him running in a Formula Ford and in a Delara Formula 3 car at the moment, Hampton Downs, and he's producing some good times. He looks talent. Yeah, karts are always a foot in the door. Scott Dixon came through that route, didn't he? Is, is that still a way through for, for kids who can't necessarily afford to get into a more expensive form of the sport straight away? Definitely karting does show them how to race close and that's the biggest thing you find. Not only that, if they do get into open wheelers it just shows them how they can run wheel to wheel but if you put a kid in that's green and hasn't done karting they're sure going to hit something or rub wheels the wrong way in them. And motor racing is dear but a lot of it is, it's like Formula Ford, it's, it's one of the most magnificent classes ever to teach a kid to race, but it's got a little bit out of hand money-wise the way they spend it on engines. There should be a limit on the engines of what can be done to them. And it doesn't cost nowhere near as much to run a Formula Ford as what you see some of these big teams charge to run or people that spend too much money on it. So you think there's, there's a, a chance to, I guess, govern it down a bit to make it more accessible? Well, that's what I reckon. I mean, when you're talking about 30000 for a 1972 model Ford Cortina engine that's modified, and every year they're talking about trying to get more horsepower, they'd be better to standardise one cylinder head on it and say that head can't be touched and lock the motors up. And and doesn't matter if they're 10 horsepower less, they've all got the same, so it's good racing, isn't it? We were talking earlier about the days when the 
I guess the cream of motor racing came to New Zealand in January and February and raced from one end of the country to the other. What difference was there in the cars back then? Were they pretty much the same and it came down to the skills of people like Sterling Moss and Jackie Stewart and so forth? No, the, even then the cars were different. you got Lotus, you got Coopers and all that sort of stuff, but there was a lot of good drivers around in those days and, and the modern technology was taken away a lot of that when you see a driver, you look at and you could tell whether the driver's good or not. But you could actually put a good driver in a current car today and screw the suspension up for him, and he'd look average. He would look average. What about your own plans? You're 69 now. You had a brush with the cardiac surgery and, and things. Is the sport still holding the same appeal to you that it has for all those years, like 53 of them? Yeah, no, I enjoy it. I mean, I don't see anything nicer in my life I'd want to do than drive a race car. I think it was more challenging years ago, I mean to win the Grand Prix in 1976 was the greatest thrill of my life, to win it in 1990 was good, to win it in 2004 was good, but it didn't have the same feeling with it, and to win races today, I get a buzz out of winning races and I, and I drive a 10 tenths, I want to be out there at the front but it's not the same as what you would have achieved something years ago, like to get early into and in early days and you win a race, you felt like you'd really done something good but saying that, that's probably because I'm getting old. But, you know, I can still hang in there in the right class of car competitive and I'm not scared on the track and I haven't lost my edge or my reaction time and I don't have intentions of giving up. Kenny Smith says it's important to take the trust's advice and get regular checkups, and he should know after having a triple bypass and other operations. He's a great believer in the use-it-or-lose-it approach to life and says reaction times don't have to diminish with age. He says he's proved that by often being quicker off the line than drivers a third of his age. The Trust's Black Tie Dinner is on July the 30th at Sky City in Auckland. Cricket Now and the New Zealand Players Association says it's not opposed to the introduction of sting operations to stamp out corruption, but says there'd need to be strict controls. Haroon Logat, the chief executive of the sports international governing body, the ICC, has suggested that sting operations could be used as the sport continues its fight against match-fixing. The head of the New Zealand Players Association, Heath Mills, told Stephen Hewson he wasn't aware the ICC was even considering such action. surprised that that's been suggested publicly. We are not aware of any moves in that direction by the ICC and, and obviously would be pretty keen to discuss that with them before anything of that nature was implemented in the short to medium term, that's for sure. What would be your concerns about it? Would you be totally opposed to such a, a plan? If the ICC are going to be introducing new plans and processes to try and catch match fixes, then principally we're going to be pretty supportive of that because no one wants to see match fixing in the sport. But before we go down the road of uh, people working undercover and, and trying to entrap players, and I think we need to understand what processes and systems are going to be implemented and make sure that they're reasonable, they're fair, and probably above all else that they're lawful. I'd be a bit concerned if the ICC was trying to entrap players or, or catch them out if those players weren't given the opportunity to work through a fair system. But also, before the ICC moves in that direction, you'd want to make sure that their education programs were, were first class and that, and that we made sure that the people around the players at all times were were people who were free of match-fixing I and mean, that we had good systems in that regard as well. So I think there's a whole lot to work through before you go down the road of trying to entrap people. I mean, and above all else, we need to make sure that's lawful if they're going to do it. The fact that you've got the chief executive, though, of the ICC suggesting such a move would indicate that the problem has got to quite a serious level. The problem actually has been 
reduced quite significantly in the last wee while. There's no question that around international matches, the work of the ICCNT Corruption Unit has, has seen a reduction in activity, well, as we understand, around international matches. And probably the biggest concern is around domestic competitions and events around the world now where the ICC Anti-Corruption Unit doesn't operate because they only have the resources to make sure that's in place around matches at international level. So I'm not sure the problem's grown at international level, but you know, I'm prepared to be convinced otherwise. I think Haroon's obviously made a comment that he's keen to always be seen, being seen to be proactive in this area, but it's important that we follow a decent process and there's good consultation with all the stakeholders before we jump into some sort of activity that perhaps, A, isn't, isn't fair or reasonable, but also may not be appropriate either. The feedback that you're getting is that domestic scene is a problem internationally? The feedback we're getting is that the, the work of the ICC anti-corruption unit around international cricket is very, very good. There's outstanding systems. No one can get in the dressing rooms. Very difficult for players or, or anyone else to communicate with players during the course of match, before, during and after. So there's good systems there. But And there's an ICC anti-corruption officer at every international match overseeing the match, um, staying with the teams at the hotel, etc., that does not happen in domestic cricket or at other festival-type events around the world. So you'd have to deduce that it's much easier for the bad people to get close to players, teams and events where the ICC anti-corruption unit isn't operating. And that, that's what, what I understand uh, to, to be the at-risk areas now moving forward. That's the head of the New Zealand Cricket Players Association, Heath Mills, talking to Stephen Hewson. And this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. The New Zealand men's hockey team didn't make a good start to the Sultan Aslan Shah Cup tournament in Malaysia, losing to Pakistan and Great Britain and drawing with Korea. But then the understrength Blacksticks beat Malaysia before coming from behind three times to defeat India 7-3. That's given them a mathematical chance of making the final, but only if they beat the world champion Australians and if Great Britain and Pakistan lose their last games. Nevertheless, coach Shane McLeod says the tournament's given younger players valuable big match experience in the build-up to the London Olympic Games next year. The group that have come over have worked very, very hard at, at the basics of our game and, and you can see at times that there's a little bit of naivety about how they play but there's also quite an enthusiasm which allows us to play quite an aggressive style and, and often when players are young and impressionable they really take things on quite quickly and you see it from half to half and you see it from the start of the tournament right through to, to where we're at now. So I guess for the near future it creates a lot more competition within the group and I think that there's going to be a few luxury problems as we get closer to the Olympics with young players coming through with very good skills and very good game understanding versus some that have been a little bit more established. When you say luxury, you mean from a selection and coaching point of view, you, you're going to be spoiled for choice, more spoiled for choice than you have been in the past? Well, I think so, yeah. The players that have come, come along to this one, some of them have been in the group for a little while and they've had to take on more senior roles and that's been really good for them. And then we've had some other players that it's their first time with us and or hadn't been with us much before, and so their learning curve is pretty quick. Tell me about India. In the past, the games have been much closer and they were one of the superpowers of hockey, not so much now, but are they rebuilding as to the same extent that you guys are? No, they actually bought quite an established side, so I'm not sure where they'll go to next in regards to how they'll develop their next set of players and so forth. They did have a good junior squad come through and that we played with our juniors 
a couple of years ago. We managed to finish higher than them at the, the Junior World Cup, but they, there was some talent there. So it won't be long until, uh, I guess, they're forced into playing those players. 7-3's quite embarrassing scoreline, really, isn't it, for them? It is, yes. Well, it's the biggest that we've ever had against them, and, and traditionally they, they have had some high-scoring games against Pakistan, but to be beat, beaten by, let's say, a more European style of game, uh, to be beaten 7-3, you know, it's, it's pretty tough for them, and, and they won't take that easy. Did anyone stand out particularly for you last night? I see Blair Hilton and Andrew Hayward both got two goals each. How did you assess their performances? Well, they did well, did very well. Probably their work rate was the thing that stood out the most. I think that Nick Wilson was also in superb form, led the, the forward unit really well. Matt Lahulia had another solid game, so he's he's a, a newbie that we brought across, and, and he's turning out to be a really great find. So, you know, those would have been the key players. I mean, I also think that they were very well led with Dean Cousins, again, doing a, a really great performance on the field and also leading the group well. Now, you've got Australia Saturday night, a long time since I'm just scratch, was scratching my head a little while ago trying to remember the last time you guys beat Australia. But you're still a mathematical chance. Realistically, how do you rate the prospects against the world champions? Well, if we can keep progressing, I, I think that it's going to be a really good game. They uh, have done a similar type of thing. They have probably a, a greater depth of pool usually to, to pull from. So a couple of their key players aren't with them. So... It makes for a closer contest, and, and I think with the momentum that the guys are getting through the tournament and in the last couple of games, if we can carry that form, it'll be a, a great game of hockey, but it could be one of those games if we do enough things right in both circles that we could manage a historic victory, but you have to always play well against Australia for 70 minutes, and that'll be our challenge. Yeah, can you remember the last time you did beat them? It was 12 years ago. So we've never beaten them in, in uh, my team. We've drawn with them a, uh, a few times, uh, but that, that elusive win. And, um, you know, there's a couple of players that, that are not with this group at the moment that, that have never beaten Australia, and well, no one in this group has beaten Australia. So, you know, if we can uh, pull a, off a victory, it will be one of those moments that, that will throw a treasure. That's the Black Sticks coach, Shane McLeod, and this is Extra Time. Rugby now, and although sometimes it seems there's hardly any All Blacks this season without an injury, the NZAU's medical director says injuries are up only slightly despite the widespread perception of a developing crisis just four months before the start of the World Cup. Steve Target says about two weeks ago he compared the number of injuries at the same time last year, and it was six fewer than this year. Dr Target says that the longer super season, bigger squads and the focus on the World Cup has also meant franchises are probably being more cautious in their management of injuries. Meanwhile, the return of Key All Blacks Richie McCaw and Daniel Carter for the Crusaders on Sunday night might help settle the nerves of fans. Carter won't play the full game to make sure his hamstring's OK, while McCaw returns to the open side for the clash with the Cheetahs and Bloemfontein, after missing the win over the Storm because of a head knock. Coach Todd Blackadder agrees rugby fans get anxious when they hear McCaw and concussion mentioned in the same sentence, but he says McCaw could have played in Cape Town and his concussion isn't an ongoing problem. No, you know, I just think he's just come back and probably first big game took a, a you know good had a good head clash. I think it's he's had symptoms in the past and ones that have always managed well. He's always come back and performed really well, and I don't think that anything's really changed here. He took 
bit of a knock. He was pretty touch and go. Yeah, he possibly could have played, but he just he had a bit of a headache and and now he's something free and he's sharp again and he wants to pull the boots on. I I just think you know the one thing about these head injuries they're unpredictable. Um, they just take a little bit of time to heal. We would never ever put a player at risk over a game of rugby. I can assure you that it's. It would never be worth it, and I'd never be able to live with myself. I can assure you that as far as like Richie goes, he's going to be fine. He'll be fine, and he'll be good to go. Todd Blackett has had to move the informed centre Robbie Fruin to the wing after Sean Maitland was one of four players forced to return home with injuries after the win over the Stormers in Cape Town. There's been relief on the injury front for the Hurricanes too, with Ma'o Nono back at second five for their match with the Highlanders in Invercargill, and halfback Perry Wepu on the bench. But although the Highlanders are third in the New Zealand Conference behind the Blues and Crusaders and ahead of the Chiefs and Hurricanes, Lock Josh Beckowitz told me injuries are affecting them too. Not only in the forwards but the backs now. It's a lot worse after the last weekend so there's a lot of reshuffling being done throughout the week. So it, is it exposed lack of depth as far as you guys are concerned or do you just think you're no worse off than everybody else? Every team's still struggling but I think we're good for lots of depth you know we've got some good young players that have been waiting for their opportunity so you know they're all ready to go and I think they'll be able to front up at at this level. How hard is it to lose someone as uh, influential and I guess also inspirational as Adam Thompson's been this season? Yeah it's pretty tough you know he's been a good leader throughout the team and um, on the field so it's going to be hard missing him. You've been getting a lot of starts. Um, I haven't gone right back through the records, but you seem to be starting more often uh, than not and, and with uh, with Jared, uh, Tom coming off the bench. How's that shaping up for you? It's been a bit of a struggle, you know, keeping that position. You know, there's a lot of competition there. All locks in, in the squad are pretty capable of starting each week. So, you know, it's, it's bringing the best out of me. You know, I've got to be on my game week in, week out. You're back home. A lot of Southland players in the team. I guess that must be a bit of a plus. Yeah, it is. You know, us Southland boys love playing down at um, Invercargill, but it's not only us boys from Invercargill, it's the whole team now. You know, they uh, they enjoy the Invercargill crowd. They uh, always get behind us and, you know, lift the whole team. What have you made of the Hurricanes? If you'd said at the start of the season they'd be where they are and you'd be where you are, a lot of people would have scratched their head and suggested you go and have a lie down. They're bottom now, aren't they, the Chief, after the Chiefs win? So what have you made of them? They're a good team and it's a hard competition you know, they've got a lot of X-Factor in their team. They've got a few boys coming back this week, I know. So they're always going to be hard, and we're aware of that. And, you know, we can't take any game lightly. We know every game is really hard. Your own plans for the future, there's a lot of talk at the moment about who's going where and what. Are you pretty happy down in the south? Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty happy down here. You know, I'll be looking around a stick, uh, stick round. That's the Highlanders' lock, Josh Beckuis, and that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz and you can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. Well, we'll be back with the next Web Only Extra Time show next week. I'm Murray Williams. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.